So today we are going to talk about bad therapy, and I know there is a lot of bad therapy out there. I'm Dr. Kim Ernest, and I am here with a number of exceptionally good therapists as we reflect upon some of the different challenges we are facing the psychotherapy field and how the impact of bad therapy pervades our culture. Hi, I am Tracy Quirk. I am a certified family-based therapist. I am Daniel Roy. I'm also a family-based therapist. I'm Dr. Terry Williams. I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Eden Yoner, a forensic therapist. Well, thank you all for joining me here today. I know that we are good therapists sort of swimming in a sea of more challenging representations of therapy within our culture. I also know that we're up against an incredible mental health epidemic, um, especially since the times of the COVID-19 pandemic. We have seen such a marked increase in those seeking help um, and looking for joy in kind of all of the wrong places. So that's the big inspiration for today's podcast. Um, I can think about my own therapy career. I've been in the field for about 18 years now, um, providing direct care to clients. And what I can remember is so frequently I would have clients that watch different representations of therapy within the media, and they expect me to be just like some of those TV doctors that will remain nameless but have names on their own show, where they come in and they just sit the client down and tell them all the different things that they're doing wrong and all the different things they need to change um, in a way that doesn't always feel useful or effective. So when you all are up against sort of these very prescriptive clinicians, can you all think of a recent time or example of a client um, that came in and wanted you to spoon feed them wellness in a way that was less effective? Um, than probably traditional psychotherapy is really meant to be. So I think there's a, a pretty good example. In a, the past couple of months, there was a, a couple that I was seeing, and the woman specifically in the couple, uh, the female partner, whenever I was working with them, she had seen uh, there were shows like You and shows like The Patient that um, even came up in conversation that we had, and they had driven this very... She had a very specific image based on what she knew of therapy from from some of these interpretations she had seen. And, and I think specifically like the outcome, how the relationship would look at, at the end of therapy was was created within her kind of based on this, right? She had a very specific example and she wanted the steps we took in the therapy to get her in her relationship to this place that, that was ideal, but ideal for her, right? And so I think some of the issues that we saw as we started working was that addressing issues and intervening on problems it didn't always look exactly like what she wanted it to and and that created some barriers for her as we're working because obviously she she wanted to have her ideal relationship and wanted it to look like she wanted and so a whole separate thing for us to address as we're working and so like in that particular example, we have a client that has this imagined relationship or this imagined, um, probably maybe one that reads a lot of romance novels or watches too much Love is Blind. I don't know. But this idea yeah. about what the outcome should be. Um, and at any point in time, were you able to alleviate them from this belief of what therapy is or what therapy isn't? I think it took a long time. And, and I think uh, addressing what they had imagined their relationship to look like at the end was something that was really important to the actual therapeutic progress for that couple. I, I think specifically trying to figure out what they wanted from the relationship and, and how to create something that worked for both of them, but didn't necessarily um, 
completely negate or, or dissolve, right? I, I wanted them to have a relationship that functioned and met their needs and that they were happy with, but obviously it might not look exactly like what they want. And so I think that that was kind of difficult for us to, to talk about and, and reimagine and, and create. But I think over time that that's something that we built towards. And I think they came to a pretty good place. Yeah, I think for a lot of clients, they come in and they don't even know really what they want. Mm -hmm. And you don't see that on the... I want to be happy. I want Yeah, I want to be happy. and Or I want other people in my life to change. You know, so I keep a magic wand by my chair and I say, look, I have a magic wand. It doesn't work. So we have to do the work. And and oftentimes they don't even know what that means. So we have to educate them mm-hmm. because they see it on TV or they see it in, in movies that the therapist knows mm-hmm. exactly what they need and what they want and just tells them how to do it. I can remember so, so many times when I was more heavily involved in working, doing addictions work, I would work with folks with severe substance use disorders that have really lost every piece of their life to it. They've essentially become the shell of a person that their loved ones once knew. And I would have like family family members, oftentimes moms or wives or girlfriends call and say like, can we have an intervention? Can we all sit them down and just tell them it so that they can see it, so that they can see and feel the hurt that they're bringing to all of us. And um, then you can sit them down and tell them exactly what to do. And then, they, and then they'll change. Um, and like what we know from the literature is that's plainly ineffective. Like the, the, the outcomes data on intervention style treatment um, leaves a lot to be desired. And yes, in that single moment, it, it's satisfying to those around the family system. You air a lot of dirty laundry, you kind of get it all out there in the open, but then, um, Three months later, three years later, that doesn't lead to any sort of like sustained recovery or sobriety, but it's so permeated the culture that that's what people are seeking, even though it's not working. Yeah, I think, too, like just thinking about the media and like how therapists look and psychologists look is like they're so smart in this show. I was watching. They always say the right thing. Right. Like. I'm just thinking about like there's an episode of Grey's Anatomy where the the therapist that's talking to Meredith is so smart. She's telling her how she feels and she's just like hitting all of the things and it's making Meredith mad. <laughs> and um, I think when in actual therapy, it's more curious questions mm-hmm. and more just asking questions to help them have that self-discovery. Um, and I do this with parents all the time. I'm trying to get them to tell them they love their kids. Mm-hmm. I'm just asking curious question after curious question. And Tracy works with me and she's like, you're thinking too hard about this. And they never, they're like, what do you want me to say? Um, And I think that's just something they've learned from the culture and and how media is portrayed. Yeah. Though we're not going to give it to you, especially in, I think, our work and my and Daniel's dynamic as partners. Like, we're not doing the work for you. I'm not going to work harder than you. And I think that's something really important for people coming into therapy to understand is that it is their work and we are just there to like guide and help you figure that out. Yeah, I often use the metaphor that I like imagine I'm an Uber driver and you just got in my Uber and I say, where we're go- where are we going? Um, and if the first thing, like most of my clients are some sort of justice involved population, if the first thing you say is like not prison, we'll be driving around for a really long time before I figure out exactly where we're headed. 
Um, but also, like, if I were to take you where I want to go, like, I love chickens. Let's go to Tractor Supply. Like, that's not a fit for everybody. Um, and so it would be narcissistic for me to imagine that, like, what works for me and what allows me to find joy and connection um, and value and a values consistent life um, isn't going to apply to all of my clients. So I have to put that on a shelf and make sure it fits. I think what's kind of interesting about what you said, and, and I really relate to this idea of get the Uber driver metaphor you used, because I think there are a lot of clients, especially within the forensic population when I'm working with them, who will come and sit down and they'll kind of say, what's wrong with me, right? Mm. They expect you to know the location, even though they got into your Uber, right? <laughs> yeah. And it made me think also, I, I think that the, so I thought about the show Rick and Morty because there's a therapist in that show as well. And the therapist can kind of soul read all of the characters, right? And and tell them exactly what's wrong with them, exactly who they are. And and I think that, yeah, it's portrayals like that that kind of create that idea that I, I can go and I can sit down with my therapist and, and I can, they'll, they'll tell me what, what I need to work on, right? They'll tell me what's wrong with me. And I think we know from, from the literature, from the research, I, I used to do my own private practice work in the area of forensic psychology, it is really hard to accurately assess a client and truly identify all the different bits and pieces. And it relies so heavily on self-report and really getting to know the client. There's not like, I wish we had it, like a brain scan or like we just put you in a CT scan and it'll spit out like a list of all your insecurities and your relationship peculiarities that are getting in the way of your connection. Um, and I think in some ways, psychotherapy provides us with that microcosm because then we get to interact with the client and maybe have that experience in a way that leads us to understand some of the processes that might be getting in their way out here. But that takes time, that takes connection, that takes relationship, takes curious questions. And sometimes we want a little more quick than that. Yeah, I was just about to say, I mean, it's the relationship building process. It's how you like build an alliance with your client. Absolutely. Particularly, I think, with the forensic population, because they're mm -hmm. not going to want to give you a lot of information about who they are right off the bat. So you really have to build that relationship. And they have some risk. Like, they've got a lot of skin in the game, because if I show you who, like, all the deepest, darkest parts of me, which we all have, by the way. Um, but if I bring all of that out on the front end, what does that mean for me long term? But they oftentimes with the forensic population, they're referred because of some sort of criminal background or some sort of um, problematic behavior that's been identified by a judge or a probation officer and they're voluntold to come to treatment. Um, and they have a choice technically, like they can go to treatment or they can go to jail. But for many of us, that doesn't always feel quite like a choice. I think what's kind of interesting, um, especially when I, in talking with some of the forensic clients, I'm thinking now about like you know, what you guys are talking about. And I think a lot of them, when they're sitting across from me, have, have this tendency to, it feels like it's really the judgment, right? They've mm. been, they may have, if they have a criminal background and they've been judged, right? And even if they've gone to prison, nobody's really told them about themselves. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of fear is associated with, if I show these deep, dark parts of myself, if I reveal kind of who I am, real judgment is going to come. Real rejection could be associated mm -hmm. with that. If I've been rejected in the past, it may not have been legitimate because I didn't show you who I truly was. But now if I bear my soul to this person, right, they may truly reject me. And what would that be like? I, 
you make a beautiful point, and but I don't think it's only specific to the forensic population. I, I mean, how many of our clients that we serve or we work with find themselves thinking like, I mean, I've thought it like, well, wow, if this person like really knew me, like really, really knew me, oh, holy cats, would they be in for it? Like it, it it's just that, that sort of fundamental belief that we're unique in our own wretchedness or that, um, that, 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 that piece of us that's just fundamentally unlovable. And like you said, when our clients come in thinking we're so smart, and we have it all together, and we don't struggle with anything other than my headphones, um, then it's really hard to to reveal themselves because we're going to judge them because you've got it all together. Yeah, the misconception that the therapist also has it all together. <laughs> As if we didn't go into this field because we don't have it all together. <laughs> I've always said healthy, well-adjusted people become engineers. Like the rest of us go into the helping professions. Um, and I think that, that brings up a, a very valid point and something I think is worth talking about with around this table, because I think even great therapists aren't going to do their best or be the best version of themselves when they are faced with something challenging external to the, I, I mean, I can think about my worst days at work. Um, and one of the general themes was that I was having some really bad times outside of work as well when those things were true. Um, I know I asked each of you in preparation for today to watch the Apple TV show uh, Shrinking. Um, and for anyone who's not watched it, I think it's a great example of some pretty terrible therapy um, and a few nuggets of decent therapy, but a lot of really bad therapy in there as well, specifically surrounding the boundaries that Jason Siegel develops um, in the midst of his grief. Um, and I personally faced grief in 2020. Um, my, my brother passed away pretty suddenly. It was unexpected. He was 33, um, got pneumonia and died. And it was one of those things that like, it shouldn't have happened. Um, and I think I spent a lot of time sort of focused on, well, this shouldn't be happening or that shouldn't be happening, getting myself really caught up in that space. And then I had to walk in to work and like have space for other people. Um, and I'm a psychologist and a supervisor and a leader. And like in none of those spaces, is it about me in that zone? Um, so I remember being there just kind of like a, a grief shell, as I can best describe it, and have somebody be like, well, my paper works hard. And I remember just like digging deep, trying to find some empathy for that. Um, and fortunately, I didn't go whole hog like Jason Siegel. I didn't like violate any boundaries significantly or move a client in with me or do anything super weird. Um, I didn't sleep with any coworkers. So I think I've, you know, on the grand scheme of things, I did okay. Um, but I also know that when I look back at my therapy tape from that time, wow, like I was a good enough therapist. I was an okay therapist, but I wasn't a great therapist. I wasn't setting the world on fire because my life outside of work had gotten pretty dark. Yeah, I think people don't always realize the obligation that we have. And I think it's a sacred obligation to be in our own therapy and deal with our own crap yeah. with somebody else so that we don't bring it into the room with us. And I see so many what we'd call bad therapists who don't do that and who bring it into the room because they're not dealing with it outside of the room. 
Terry, you have supervised how many people do you imagine over the course of your career? I have no idea. Tons, right? 50, 60 people, probably upwards of that, I would suspect. Um, How many bad therapists did you encounter because of a lack of skill? Off the top of my head, I I can think of three. That just plainly didn't have the skill yep. to do the job. Yep. And the other challenges that you encountered, to what would you attribute their challenges? Personality disorder, not dealing with their own shit, and arrogance. Ah, so an unwillingness. To, yes. like, like they had the potential though, right? Yes. And that to me has always been the most frustrating part about supervising, like great clinicians, but you see this like blind spot that they might have. Um, so I love what you said about getting into your own therapy if you want to be a good therapist. And even in doing some of the, uh, so I've only done some supervision now, but even in doing that, I, I think that's something that I've seen in a number of them now has been this idea that a client specifically will will bring up something that is challenging them on the outside in their own personal life. And they'll struggle to effectively work with that client or to effectively work with other clients because when they go into their job, the job, the, the place that they're working is now kind of bringing these things up for them. It's a place where they go and they kind of dwell on it. And so I think that can be a challenge. And what I notice in those instances are so frequently, and, and we see it a lot in like the portrayals of media, these like perfect therapeutic relationships. Um, and that was another issue I had with shrinking. I don't know if y'all finished it, but at the end, there's this montage of like every client just doing really well. Like they had at the end of this like fictitious six month period, every single client is like living their best life. They're going to like football games. They're hanging out with friends or family. And I think that's such an unrealistic metric. So I think sometimes the portrayals that we see give unrealistic expectations to our clients. Um, But especially in my role as a supervisor, I think so frequently my supervisees come in with these really unrealistic expectations about how therapy is going to go and that they're going to be able to take this client from like zero to 100 um, in, you know, one single authorization period. And that's just plainly impossible for a lot of our clients and staff. Well, and something I was thinking about watching the show, too, was like me and Tracy work in family based where things are very, very different than outpatient. And most people are going to be placed in an outpatient therapy setting when they go to therapy. But I remember watching the show thinking like, I mean, I know these things are bad boundaries, but like we would definitely do them in family based, like taking them out for ice cream. And, you know, like, I mean, by no means would anyone live with us. We don't bring them home with <laughs> we us, don't. but we do definitely put them in our cars. Yeah. Um, and so like, I think which is part of the service. Right. Yeah, we clarify that. Right. And <laughs> I think it's one of those things where like having the right expectations and knowing what kind of therapy you're going into um, is another part of being responsible about picking your therapy and knowing what's needed. No, I think y'all bring up a very valid point because you also provide in-home care, which is completely different from office-based treatment. 
I remember years ago, I had the opportunity to go see Patch Adams speak and talk about like his process as a therapist. And he would say like, yeah, I would just go into people's houses and start like going through their drawers. And like, he would talk, he had once had a client that was too depressed to get out of bed. So he just laid in bed with them and did therapy. Um, and I remember I being like, <laughs> yeah, no, 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 please don't lay in bed with your clients, please. Um, but just that, that when you're doing, when you're providing the service within the home, those boundaries look so much more different. Um, and in your particular treatment modality, you get a chance to work with the entire system. So you get to work with like teachers and psychologists and psychiatry and mom and dad and kiddos and big brother and the aunt that lives in the basement. And like, you get to pull that all together. Um, so it's just so different from like the more traditional outpatient therapy that we do. Yeah. And I think that's one of the problems with the way that those quote unquote perfect therapeutic relationships like are portrayed on TV because I mean, we see it in shrinking. I've seen it in every show with a the therapist ever or, or clients, they have sex with the client or they, yeah, they that doesn't happen. One, like, yeah. What, what? One or the other. Where like the therapist is picking up the cell phone when they're at the grocery store and answering their clients. And that is what is portrayed as the perfect relationship. When in reality, that's just poor boundaries. Yeah. So I think that really messes with people's expectations of what they're going to get. Oh, I can remember a time where I had a supervisee get fired by their client because the client called at like 1030 on a Friday night. The supervisee called him back Monday at like 1230. She was Monday was her late day. So she'd work like 12 to eight on Mondays. She called him back Monday and he's like, you didn't call me all weekend. I'm done with you. Um, and she's like, well, that like in this level of care, we're not an emergency, sir. And it wasn't an emergency that this gentleman was calling for either. There was no reason um, to tap into those after hours things. But it's just when you see the expectation where the therapist is just answer, answering the phone, texting all the time. Um, and I make no bones about it. I travel between our 24 different clinics any given day. So I see all my clients via telehealth and all of my clients have my cell phone number. But I set very clear boundaries like you don't call me um, or text me unless it is for scheduling purposes but I'm otherwise like I need to transfer skills to you I can't just be here doing hand over hand with you um otherwise I'm robbing you of your autonomy but we have somebody like Jason Siegel who walks them through like goes out to restaurants with his clients to teach them how to go on dates and things I've been thinking about the the end of therapeutic relationships specifically as you guys are talking about that and I think to the point of like how devoted Jason Seagal is and and you know, to his clients in the show. Am I saying his name wrong? Is it Seagal? Oh, I don't. Oh, I was. I've been trying to figure it out since I started watching the show. Seagal. We should Google that. We'll figure it out. Jason. I looked at Jason's character. I looked it up and it said Seagal. I think. I'm just gonna call him Jason. So Jason's character (laughs) in the show, right? Obviously, he's very devoted, and I think one of the things that has kind of hurt clients, uh, their thoughts and their feelings about being in therapy, has been that the fact that sometimes. The work is too stressful and they'll they'll leave. And if the therapist just up and leaves, they don't care about me. Right. And and if you have this portrayal portrayal in your head that the therapist is going to be very devoted to my care and they're going to go to these great lengths to really treat and make me happy, right, in the end, and then midway through your treatment, they're just gone. That can be I don't know, it has been devastating for some clients. So 
Yeah. I, oh gosh. I think right now we are in a culture where the typical length of stay within a given job is relatively short. Um, I think folks, uh, I mean, Terry has been here forever. 35 years. 35 years. Um, and uh, I've been now back doing direct care at PCS for 12. So I've had the opportunity to get to do a lot of long-term care with my current clients. So most of my clients I've seen for two or more years weekly. And um, right now, many of them have titrated to biweekly. So that's really nice to be able to do that full continuum of care. Um, but I've also been there where a cl clinician has called in and said, like, I can't do it anymore. My last day was yesterday. My stuff's on my desk. Deuces. <laughs> um, and then been the staff member to call and like walk each of those, the individuals on that person's caseload through the process of transitioning to a new therapist. Um, and that is devastating, but especially in community mental health, um, we tend to be a shorter term length of stay before folks go on to private practices or other models. And so that does make it really, really hard to be a Jason S style therapist, plus some good boundaries though, plus good boundaries, please. Yeah. I think that was a really good point about like the ending of a therapeutic mm -hmm. alliance. I mean, we are in a different boat because we are only authorized to work with clients for eight, eight months, months at a time. But even it doesn't in like, even feel like it can scratch the surface with many of your cases. You're telling me. <laughs> um, but like even in shrinking and I know that there are therapeutic relationships that last for decades. Mm -hmm. But we tell all of our clients like our job is for you to not need us anymore. And I think that's like, it is very traumatic for a patient, a client to just have like that sudden loss. But also like that is why we are not there to give you the answers. It's why we're not there to be the person to do the things for you. One of our um, client's moms that we work with the other day was having a really hard time and she was with her outpatient therapist and she was like, you're not going to give up on me, right? Because you're my rock. Mm -hmm. And the therapist was like, but I shouldn't be. Like, mm -hmm. I shouldn't be your rock because this does happen. I think to that point, uh, especially with the forensic population where you, you are working, like we were talking earlier, with people who haven't opened up really fully or honestly to someone before. And if you develop this honest relationship, right, this therapeutic alliance, which is honest, Usually it can be, you know, the first real secure relationship that that person might develop in their life. And, and if that therapist then leaves, it may further compound these beliefs that there's nobody out there that I can truly trust to be there for me. And I think that can be really damaging to beliefs about therapy and the, the benefit therapy can have for clients. When, when we look at media portrayals of therapy, oftentimes they don't end. Um, I remember watching like that uh, the movie a couple of years ago, Fifty Fifty. Um, uh, it's got J uh, Joseph Gordon Lovett and um, Seth R Seth Rogen. I've never seen it. Oh, it's good. It's good. Um, th the therapist in it terrible, um, but re the rest of the movie is quite good. But it's about a, a younger guy that gets um, like spinal cancer or back cancer of some kind, um, and the Fifty Fifty premise is that he's. Um, got a 50% likelihood of living or dying. Um, and so he goes and sees this therapist to like work through um, his own mortality in essence and really kind of develop a way to navigate his cancer effectively. 
Um, and then at the end of like their therapeutic relationship, they get together for pizza and go on to date. <laughs> um, and I can't tell you how many times I've had clients that said like, after we've terminated, then like sent me a friend request on social media or, um, said like, so now can we go get that drink together? And it's like, well, my ethics code says five years. So you got to wait for a really long time. Um, but they just don't have any, like, and I think we rob our clients of the opportunity if we choose to stay connected to them, which is plainly unethical in my book. But if we choose to maintain that ongoing connection, we rob them of the opportunity to have a true good ending in their life. Um, and ending, endings are so hard. Most of the time, we don't get to have a satisfying ending. And so I see such reparative value in the ability to give a client and to be able to have the experience of ending well with someone and ending in a way that you get to say everything you get to say and it can be affirming um, because that's such a rarity in our lives. We don't have a lot of that. The movie, um, the movie Goodwill Hunting had a great ending between the therapist and the mm -hmm. patient. It was awesome because they, they said goodbye mm -hmm. and did that talking about everything between them and what had happened and you know, wished him well as he went off and then lived his life. Which is what we're supposed to do. Exactly. And it sucks, right? It's like reading a book and only getting to pick like the middle couple chapters and like you get a synopsis of the earlier chapters and then you get to read and maybe even pick up the pen for a minute on those central chapters and then you have to put down the book and you don't get to know how the story ends. Um, but again, the work's not for us. It's for right. them. Um, and I, I mean, I, I wish there was a way to like your ex-clients, where are they now? You know, like get to know how they're doing or what they're up to. Like I, I certainly there are times where different clients in my 18 years of providing direct care will like come into my mind and I think and like think about them and like send a good vibe their way and just hope that they're living their best life. But like. I don't go that extra step and like Google them to try to figure out what happened. My hope is to just um, that the part of our story that we created together has impacted them positively moving forward. Yeah. Well, and for us, like working with families, I feel like we get to the end of the eight months and everyone starts like self-sabotaging because <laughs> they're like, we need you. We need an extension. We need another round. Um but in family base, often we're just a part of a really long journey for them. We're a part of this like really small part to help them get to where they need to be. Um, and so often I feel like they get so attached and they they just lose it at the end of treatment. And I have to remind them of all the work they've done to get to where they're at now and to not, you know, go back on on all of that which I think goes to show the importance of boundaries that we sometimes don't necessarily have in family based just because we do work with families. We do go into their homes and it shows in like that attachment that happens so quickly. And that's why in most therapeutic settings, like can't do that. So. No, I think, um, it's our job to work ourselves out of a job, but it's so tempting um, 
like there is something satisfying or gratifying about like when the client like looks at you like you're the first ray of sunlight they've ever seen or um, there's something very seductive about that idea of like, hey, you're the first real attachment I've ever had and to have that connection um, or to foster like, but to foster that sense of dependency um, isn't fair to the client. It's not safe for the client. Um, I don't think MCOs, uh, managed care organizations, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, but managed care organizations, which are often the insurance companies um, for our high-risk, high-needs populations, um, I don't think it's fair um, to say that they do everything wrong, although there are some challenges there that I'd like to see change mm -hmm. over time. Um, but I think one thing to really keep in mind is if it's not billable, it's probably not in your job description. And so I so often will encounter, especially early career clinicians that are plainly over-functioning for their clients. And so I, and they're like, well, I'm not, I'm getting paid minimum wage for this, or I'm not getting paid my billable rate for this. And it's like, well, then you shouldn't be doing it. If it's not a billable service, that falls beyond the scope of your role within this client. Um, and as much as it might be like, quote unquote, helping the client, just like I think Jason Segal, um, gives really good advice and like, I agree with him in certain times when the, the, with his client that's in the abusive relationship and he's like, leave him. He's, he's garbage. Like he's not good for you. Just get out of there. Or I'm not going to see you anymore. Um, I don't disagree with his assessment. Um, and we don't, we don't have the right to make those kinds of decisions for our client. No, we always have to remember the underlying ethical foundations of benevolence, non-maleficence, and autonomy. Yes. And we have to allow our clients autonomy even when they're making decisions that would go against what I would do or what I would want for them. Well, Kim, and I, Kim used to be our supervisor for, for a short time. And I'm thinking about like over-functioning therapist. <laughs> and Kim has personally called me out for being that over-functioning therapist. I wasn't going to do it here, Daniel. But. Um, but like that was a huge like learning point. Just going, talking back to your point about like supervision and how important like therapists like getting that, I mean, therapy or supervision, like whatever it is so that you know you're going on the right path. But like, you know, I know that was a huge turning point for me. And having my own boundaries almost increased with families after that. And it's truly like served me, served me well since then. I think that's probably one of the things that that show does an okay job at. Because I think we talked about the idea that the therapist is all knowing, they're omniscient, and they can help the client through any problem that the client may bring. But I think they do a pretty good job of showing that because there is like the break room where they go and ask questions. And he says, I have no idea what I'm going to do what what am I going to do with this or how am I going to do this right and I think they do a pretty good a pretty decent job of showing that you know sometimes the therapist may not have an idea of how to address whatever's going on with the client yes I always like to give my clients permission like if what I'm about to say is absolutely wrong like tell me that because I could have no idea what I'm saying and just like giving that power back to them because you are the expert on yourself. We always tell our families they're the experts on their families. I don't know everything. 
And I agree. And I think it's okay to even to some degree display that to your clients. I think I, I so often have a client that'll come to me and say like, well, what should I do? And I'm like, well, what do you think you should? I, I, just a couple of weeks ago, I had a client that was trying to decide about whether or not to end a relationship and said, well, what do you think I should do? And I said, well, what do you think you should do? She's like, that's why I'm asking you. I was just spat at you. I'm sorry. That's why I'm asking you. It's like, no, but like, I'm not the expert. And I don't want to give you advice that you go on to follow. And then five, six, 10 months down the road, you reflect back and was like, wow, that was like, that was Kim's stuff, not my stuff. Um, because I'm also a human being with my own like beliefs and standards and attitudes and values. And if I take that and project that onto my client and rob them of their autonomy, um, I think in those moments to fall back and say, I really, I don't know what you should do. Uh, my crystal ball is broken. Like your magic yeah. wand doesn't work. Uh, my crystal ball has been in the shop for years. And so I can't predict that outcome for you. Um yeah, I remember a client I had, um, this was years ago, and she was an older woman in a very dysfunctional marriage. And she said to me, I cannot leave. I'm older. I have no financial stability. I have to stay. And my response to her was, I can respect that. I can hear the reasons that you need to stay. So what can we do to make the rest of your life better so that you're not focusing on what's going wrong with him? You know, what can we do to look at enhancing what you do outside of the marriage and outside of that relationship? And she's like, I'm going to join a pool. I'm like, awesome. And she did. Let's go swimming. Yeah. And that helped because it got her out of the house and she could put up with what she felt like she needed to put up with. I think that the example you just used so beautifully illustrates another common problem in bad therapy, which is to hyper-focus on problem solving, hyper-focus on fixing. I mean, most of our clientele in community mental health um, have like socioeconomic factors, um, intergenerational patterns, um, systemic factors that are contributing to their suffering. Um, and I remember my husband who is now a programmer, but is still technically a licensed professional counselor. Um, when he first started doing this work, he's like, if I could just give each of my clients like 20 grand, it would change everything for them. Like if we could just like address some of the, but we can't. So you're illustrating this idea of like, Instead of just focusing on the darkness and trying to take it and like shove it into a box and put it into the closet, we're going to turn on a light. And maybe that light's just a candle or maybe it's like a, this size like flashbulb beam, but we just keep focusing on periodically and systematically increasing the light. And then by proxy, the darkness will feel less dark. Oh, all of our families love to focus on the darkness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Like 90% of our time is just like positively reframing whatever it was they just said. Um, and I think it can create a darkness for us as well. And so like, I think there's also a boundary between like your personal life and the workplace as well um, that you have to like maintain not only like with your clients, but like just like with your work as a whole, like coming home, doing whatever it is that you need to do to like leave it behind and start over the next day. Like the amount of times that my friends are like, you're a therapist. Are you analyzing me every time we talk? I'm like, God, 
I don't want to do my job outside of work any more than you do. No. Oh, I look at him and say, are you paying me? (laughs) I think that can be a really important conversation to have with clients too. I think uh, kind of back to the idea of like the role of the relationship and having that discussion. I think sometimes there, there are clients that will kind of, as they're developing this relationship with you, begin to feel like, we're, we're friends now, right? Mm-hmm. We're friends. And I think that can actually be a difficult conversation to have sometimes that I I don't make my friends pay to spend time with me, right? The the nature of our relationship is different. Mm-hmm. Although it can it can feel good at times, which which mm-hmm. we all want, but right, the, the nature is different. It's fundamentally different. Yeah, we're kind of a conduit to help them find other relations out there that can be satisfying. Mm-hmm particularly for those who haven't had that attachment or that security that you were talking about earlier. And hopefully a place where we can allow some healing in that space of attachment or security by being consistent, by showing up. But I think that also, again, speaks to those boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, I can only be consistent in as far as I'm capable of being consistent. And so if I show up for you all day, every day for three months. And then let's say I go on vacation because I love to go on vacation. I like to take a day off and go hang with my kids or do this or do that. Um, And I miss that, that moment, that touch point with you. Um, I'm now that inconsistent attachment figure yet again, that, that the next person to let them down. Um, And that's a dangerous spot for us to put ourselves in. And so even Harrison Ford, right? His character within Shrinking is the mentor. He's, he's, you know, I love the, him. yeah, I, his character is great. And, and I'm not saying that there aren't going to be clients that see therapists or, or counselors for, for years and years, right? That, that relationship can obviously exist, but I think that they, there, there's a client he sees at one point who says, you know, I've been seeing you for 20 years and I'm, having a really difficult time figuring, you know, do I want to talk to you about the pants that I might be able to, you know, wear or the the jacket? And and I think maybe it does paint this unrealistic picture sometimes that the therapist is going to be dedicated to you for, for 20 years. They're going to, and, and the best and brightest of us are, are going to be those people, right, who can dedicate ourselves for years and years and years. But again, I think back to the nature, the role of the relationship, I think sometimes it's, you shouldn't, you shouldn't need us for 20 years if we help you develop those relationships or address those issues. That's exactly, is... that's exactly the scenario from the show that I was thinking of. Yeah. And my mindset was also like, bro, why are you still paying him? <laughs> 20 years. Yeah. They just often find so much satisfaction in the relationship that they have with you. I mean, we have a mom who every time she sees me, she's just like, I'm mad at you. And I'm like, why are you mad at me today? Because <laughs> you weren't here for our last our last oh, session. There it is. She well, will use the word "you abandon me." Oh yeah, all the yeah. Time. And I'm like, well, I was in a training. I had to be there. <laughs> but, she's like, well, you need to tell them to change the training when we have a session. <laughs> well, and I think like our responses in those moments are important too. Like mm-hmm. I think you do a really good job at not like over explaining and saying so sorry I wasn't here. It's just like. It's just what I had something yep. to do too. I have things that go on. And if the training happens again, we have a session. I will be at that training. <laughs> Begrudgingly, but you will be there. <laughs> I think that brings up a good point, though. There are also times when I think some of my most powerful work has been when I've legitimately made an error, mm-hmm. when I've made a mistake. Um, way back when we didn't have computers to do our scheduling and stuff, 
I triple booked one time. Triple? Triple. <laughs> I had no idea how I did that. But, you know, it was powerful because, first of all, they saw I am human and I do make mistakes. I apologized profusely. I owned it was my mistake, not not anything they had done. For most clients, that's kind of new to them to have somebody who they might see as sort of an authority apologize. And it ended up being a really good thing because we talked about how they put people on a pedestal and then are constantly disappointed. So I think, you know, those perfect therapists that we see on on those shows never make mistakes, but we make mistakes all the time inadvertently. Well, and I think to that point, I like, I think we talked a little bit earlier about the idea that therapy is is happy, right? And and the clients will end and they'll be happy. And I think that some of what we're even like identifying now, these difficult conversations that are difficult for both us and the client, right, are often the most, they're the most beneficial, right, that, that we can have. And they can bring us into areas that they may suck to talk about, but they're, they're good, right? What we're addressing, what we're working on is is what's needed. I've worked with so many clients over the years that what, at the first sign of trouble, they, they bolt. Like the first rupture within the relationship, they peace out. And they're like never to be seen again. Um, and I think there are times where that's also happened to me like as a therapist where we have a therapeutic rupture and they don't return. I can think of one instance in grad school where someone like uh, this, this client had a lot of attachment trauma and just was so skilled at like murdering you with words and so she called and broke up with me on the phone and I was trying to like encourage her to come in to at least have a termination session at least let me transfer you to another clinician um, give me an opportunity to like heal in this with you um, and I and I remember being so frustrated with the client because she wouldn't give me that chance um, and it just felt like such a pattern that was interwoven throughout so many of our sessions and so many um, of her relationships prior to our meeting and just not being given that opportunity to resolve it. And then in other instances, I can think about therapeutic ruptures that simply being able to repair was so beneficial to the client within that moment. Um, and so I try to make at least like five mistakes per client at this point. No, I don't. But I do. I mean, I often make a lot of mistakes with my clients. And I think it's that having that ownership piece. I, I think I do it with my supervisees too at different points in time. Um, but I, I find like very relatable to Harrison Ford's character where he's like, I don't know what the fuck you do. Um, and there are times where I, I have like a young, bright-eyed supervisee come to me like, what should I do? I'm like, fuck if I know. That's a, that's a hard one. <laughs> no, we should talk it about it. Um, I was thinking about the fact that I think we never see in the media, we see one of two things. We see somebody go and see a therapist that they think is bad, that they think is bad, mm-hmm. and then they never try and find the right fit. They just never do therapy again. Mm-hmm. Or they go to a therapist and they're immediately perfect. And I think that's also like an unrealistic portrayal because you're not always going to go to a therapist and then be the person for you. Um, we've come across so many people, and I'm sure everybody here has, who have just refused to come back to therapy because they had a therapist that wasn't a good fit for them. Um, and I think that's something that we see in the media all the time. I think something that I hadn't seen before, I think the patient is is decent in the portrayal of, of therapy for 
a show about a, ther- a therapist that gets kidnapped by a murderer. But I, I think one of the, the conflicts that is brought up in that is the idea that the patient themselves, right, whenever they get close to touching and talking about this really vulnerable topic to them that, that really stirs up a lot in them, they go shopping for a new therapist, right? This therapist isn't working for me. It's just not happening. I'm not changing. Let, I'm going to go find someone else because it's ineffective. Mm-hmm. And and I think being able to being able to see that hopefully provides to some people like this realistic expectation that again therapy is hard and mm-hmm. conversations are they're going to get hard and so you should be like comfortably uncomfortable mm-hmm. if that makes sense like that opposite bell curve like there's that perfect mm-hmm. sweet spot you don't want to be so uncomfortable that you're completely dysregulated and um, being re-traumatized or whatever it is and you it doesn't like you shouldn't be laughing throughout your entire therapy session either mm-hmm. um, occasionally though it's good to have a session like that every once in a while right every once yeah, right. in a while it's okay to have like a maintenance session yeah i feel i call it like jello sort of in the refrigerator and consolidating you just have a session like that you can't have every session like that no but once in a while you just need to have that i try for every third session session. otherwise when you're working with so many traumatized clients you know sometimes part of their work is learning to laugh and like learning to have a good time and we see that so so much in family base where like these families have been so therapized that they just know all the things. And it's like, bro, just have a good time. Like, but they don't just, know how to play a they game don't, They don't know how to play a game. Like, and we're like, all right, get Monopoly. We're going to play a board game tonight. That's therapy. Um, just so that they learn to spend time together and have a good time together and start to build those relationships. Right. Um, and then highlighting that that was the work. Right. We're like, hey, we weren't just messing around. <laughs> this was work. Oh, no. Parents, parents never see it as work. They're always like, we're not talking about the hard things. And I'm like, well, why don't you start to to work on a relationship before you start talking about the hard things so they trust you? There have been some forensic groups that I've run with some real prison-hardened guys, right? And we'll do some dumb exercise, right, where they, they take time and they disclose silly things about themselves, right? Or they work to interview another group member and then tell the group about that member, right? And there are these silly little things that they, they have fun and they usually enjoy. And, and I think that, yeah, that's that, that's a big part of it is, you know, you opened up to these people, which isn't something that you've necessarily done in the past. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was okay. You're, you're all right. And in fact, you may have actually smiled or laughed during this. So, yeah. What was it like to experience sadness and happiness at the same time? <laughs> um, I feel like that's something that we work on. Um, and I feel like a, another like misportrayal that I feel like I see in media a lot and on social media. A lot on social media. Yeah, it's just like there seems to be no direction of like where the therapy is going. Like there's no theory being used. It's just like we're just going to talk about whatever it is we're talking about. Um, you know, whether it's like, I mean, we use DBT all the time. We love DBT. Um just because some of our more traumatized clients don't know how to experience multiple emotions at the same time. They only know how to experience their sadness and their trauma. Um, and they forget about all those other emotions that they have. 
I think that social media, as you're bringing it up, like things like TikTok or Facebook, Instagram, I see the worst portrayals of mental health mm -hmm. um, feedback and information on there. And I think the biggest thing is that sort of along the same lines of what we were talking about in bad therapy is this prescriptive nature. I don't know you. There is no relationship. Um, it is simply this like oh, do you have these four boxes? Well, then you probably have autism. And it's like, no, man, like that is not helpful. Um, and it's taking a bunch of people that are fairly vulnerable um, and sort of putting these thoughts in people's heads. And I, I, don't, I don't know how we can sort of become part of the solution with that, but there's a lot of really bad um, advice out there portrayed in those particular settings. And it's scary. I'm in a lot of like mommy groups and if their kiddo is having temper tantrums, they're like, well, have you tried giving him medical marijuana? It's like, he's five. No, don't give a five-year-old medical marijuana because they have tantrums. Five-year-olds are supposed to have tantrums. Right. That's developmentally normal. Please don't give your child drugs. Um, but so often it's sort of like people are at the end of the rope and they turn to that thing in their pocket that tells them what to do. I think it's because it's so generalized to the population where it's like this one person's experience mm -hmm. is then put out for everyone else. And it's like, this will work for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but everybody else is just so different. And everybody else's experience is, you know, it's not the same. And you know, I think this might easy. Oh, sorry. sorry. Go ahead. It goes back to being easy. Mm -hmm. You know, if I can give my kid a pill, then I don't have to do the work. Or if I can give my kid medical marijuana. No, don't do that. I, no, no. And it works. Then you know, yeah. I don't have to do the work of parenting. You know, the one thing that I, I think throughout all this, I, I've been so like focused, my mind has been focused on like the negative as the things mm -hmm. that are being shown that aren't necessarily realistic or helpful or, but I, I think one of the things that I'm now thinking about as I think about portrayal is the fact that it, it usually is that therapy works. And so I'm grateful mm -hmm. for that at, yeah. at the least that there are these representations where it, it helps the person, right, in the end. So even if therapy isn't what necessarily the person may think it will look like, they may come they may come give it a try, right? In the in shrinking, the one thing that was really curious to me was um, Harrison Ford's suggestion of fifty minute grief windows. Um, and I remember watching that thinking like, I want to try this. I want to have like just 15 minutes to grieve. Um, and I thought that that was just such a curious idea and it, it doesn't track with like my understanding of exposure therapy. So I think it should be at least 45, um, to be in keeping with the science. But I do think it's interesting that there are some really good nuggets in there, which is like stop avoiding and just feel the shitty feelings. Um, and you'll feel better afterwards. And they show, um, like several characters throughout the story, like do the 15 minute grief window and have their moment and then go about their day. Um, but so often, yeah, they, we don't show how much it works um, and it really does work. Well, and I think they do. So there's another point where um, the one character who's struggling with, you know, anger and being angry with people and, and beating people up, getting into these fights, right? He, he successfully avoids getting into a fight with somebody that he could yeah. have gotten into a fight with. And it's not this feeling of elation and, you know, euphoria. I've, I've done it. I've successfully avoided it. He's actually feeling worse yeah. <laughs> afterwards. And I think that that is kind of potentially a realistic, you know, expectation that sometimes you will avoid doing exactly what you wanted to do. And you're not 
necessarily it's not going to be daisies right mm -hmm. after there's still going to be stuff to work through yeah i often tell clients who are working on kind of codependency like issues if you feel guilty then you've probably done the right thing because everything you do that's codependent is to avoid that guilt so if you feel guilty good job good work a normal level of happiness and unhappiness well and i think that is something that is not social media wise portrayed. We've got all of these influencers and all of this that their social media looks perfect all the time. And I think that lends into a lot of like hopelessness, especially for like our younger generations of like, they look perfect and happy all of the time. Why can't I? And I think, I don't know, there's two sides to it. Cause I think there's something beautiful in how much like, the younger generation in social media is open to talking about like mental health mm -hmm. and everything. Um, but be open to talking about your mental health and then don't try and fix it on TikTok. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good, right. good advice. Well, something I've seen with like TikTok and Instagram recently is like a lot of mental health clients are sharing their experiences in therapy, which I think is great. But so often what I'm seeing is they're, talking about their therapist telling them or like informing them what it is that they're uh, struggling with or experiencing from another person and they're just giving them the answer and they're then passing on that answer to everyone else <laughs> on social media um, and it's it's just not generalizable and then if I'm having the same struggles as you're having you've now given me the answer right. I go do the answer um, over and over and over again. And then what's wrong with me that the answer doesn't work? Um, so I must be uniquely broken or like extra damaged because you had this answer and it worked for you. And this one size fits all approach when applied to me isn't effective. Um, and I think we'll see that in, uh, especially with early career cl clinicians, when I'm supervising them, they go in and they're like, all right, I've got this model and I'm doing the thing. And my client told me to fuck myself. Like, I don't, I don't know what to do about that. And it's like, yeah, like some, sometimes, you know, it doesn't go according to plan. Um, and that's what I love about the DBT literature is that this isn't a, this isn't a solution to all your woes, mm -hmm. but if you follow this model, you have fairly high likelihood of success. It still might all burn to the ground. We don't know. Um, but you might like this leads to a better likelihood of a positive outcome. But again, you don't have total and full control of everything that you do. Um, and we are not our clients outcomes. Um, but so often I sit with my like supervisees or trainees and they're feeling really broken and carrying it really heavily um, because they didn't get that desired outcome with a client or they're sitting in the heartbreak because they had sort of the worst case outcome with a client. The other thing that really irritates me about how therapy is portrayed in particularly television, I think, is HIPAA violations. <laughs> you know, yeah. when particularly when um, perhaps There's no confidentiality and, and law enforcement comes and says, mm. we want records and, the, you know, initially we can't give records. Well, I'm going to get a court order and then they hand over the records like we have to we wait until you get the court. Order. Yeah, go ahead and get the court order then, you know, but these people, I think it it sort of lessens their faith in our ability to hold their mm. 
confidence and and their um, ability to be honest sometimes because of that because they feel like well if you if the police come are you going to give up my stuff or if you get subpoenaed are you going to give up my stuff and because they show that on television well we're going to issue a subpoena and you're going to give us the records and they hand over the records mm -hmm. or in like law and order they're like well she's dead and, and then they're like, okay, well, here's the records. Well, we still have confidentiality, even if you're dead. Like, we can't just share that information and share those details. Um, not great. Sorry, I thought you had started. Now to say everybody something. keeps looking at me. And yeah. I'm trying to think. You're wise. You're given, you're given with the beard it. and everything. It's given wise vibes for sure. So I guess sort of in closing, and I want to wrap us up on, on a different note, but so what do we do like as a group of collective clinicians that like believe deeply in the work that we do? I don't think anyone would be, be sitting around this table doing the work that we do if we didn't believe in the power of therapy. Um, I have met a few therapists that have said like, well, therapy doesn't work. And it's like, what are you doing? But for the <laughs> most part, I think that we come into this profession because we believe in the effectiveness of therapy. So how do we address some of these concerns sort of out there in the media, in the culture? How do we address it with our individual clients when they come through the door to know that um, we're not just gonna hand over all their records because we have somebody threaten us with a subpoena or if they die, we're not gonna you know, release their search history to the world. Like, what do we do? Um, to ameliorate the the impact of these terrible media portrayals of therapy. So, now I'll, I'll talk now. Um, <laughs> one something that like I kind of oriented myself to as, as I was working, right? Because you know I came into the field with whatever thoughts and delusions surrounding what the what the job is going to be like and what working with clients will be like. And I think one of the things that initially I said to myself was, "It's not a magic trick, mm. right?" I'm not trying to do something that the client can't see and then voila, right, I pull the solution out and, and everything's fixed. Um, so I think being honest it, and being upfront and, and being willing to explore and talk about what we're doing and, and what the nature of our relationship is, what, what my role is, what your role is, and, and what this process may look like. I think that's a great conversation to have and, and to keep coming back to, right? I think if you ground the work in that idea of like what we're doing and, and who we are and, and everything like that, I think that, again, that alliance can be strong and no one will have confusion about mm -hmm. termination or any of those other things that can otherwise be challenging. Well, and Kim, I think you are beginning that work on a bigger scale just by like having this as this podcast like these topics being talked about I think it's very mm -hmm. validating for therapists to listen to but like I think it can be very eye-opening for maybe somebody who is considering on going to therapy and seeing something called bad therapy it's like Hmm. I'm, I'm interested in that because I already have a predisposition to therapy but hearing this and hearing therapists talk about like struggles in therapy or things that are just normalized and generalizable um, could be helpful for them and freeing. 
And I think really good therapists can have bad sessions. And I want to normalize that as well. Like I can look back over my compilation of therapy tape at times and be like, ooh, wow, what was I doing? What what face am I, what did I say? Um, and I think that that's really normal, but then gives us that opportunity to repair. And my, I get to be a human being for my clients instead of, you know, Dr. Ernest sitting in her ivory tower with all the answers. I think um, we all as clinicians and as clients are going to have bad days on either side of that coin and creating like space and grace for that. Um, and leaning into the repair afterwards. I think that's where like the ma- that's where the magic trick is. The magic is in the repair. If there's any magic in therapy, it's repairing a rupture in the relationship. Yeah. I mean, I think it also just starts small. I don't think there's any like major solution to this, but even just being conscious in our own social medias of like sharing the good quote unquote resources. Um, and just sometimes I feel like it's even a battle within like my own family mm. <laughs> of like explaining why therapy is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, I don't have a solution for the kind of big world problems surrounding these portrayals, but even just starting small with like your own circle, um, and providing like positive resources. And I think, like, coming back to that idea, um, especially for, like, the starry-eyed clinicians who may be journeying into the field and creating their career or, or whatever it is of, of bad therapy or failure, right? I think one of the most valuable things that someone ever said to me was when I started working here and I was in orientation, right? I, I the, There's the part of me that's just a perfectionist and wants to succeed at everything I do. And one of the first things that somebody w- had said to me whenever we were at that orientation was, you're going to fail. <laughs> and, you know, I think that was actually one of the most, like, comforting things that I could have heard mm-hmm. because that was what I was afraid of, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to fail. And if, if you expect me to fail, well, then maybe I'll do so with a little more grace and, and I'll be a little bit more willing to learn from it and maybe I won't be as hard on myself. And I think that that's potentially something. I mean, imposter syndrome's huge in this field. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's something that I, I'm, if you're listening, all you starry-eyed therapists <laughs> that may be coming in to, to do this work, right? You're fail, going to fail. You're going to fail. And, and that's okay. Yeah, yeah. And you're giving your clients an opportunity with your failure. Like you're creating an opportunity to not just be a human being and fuck up and show them how imperfect you are, show you, show them that you don't have all the answers. But I think it's not this process of like, I have all the answers, but I'm just holding them over here. I have them, but I'm going to hold on to them. And I'm just going to ask you a bunch of curious questions because I know them, but I'm waiting for you to get there. Um, and truthfully, like, I don't have all the solutions. Like, certain things I know work. Like, good boundaries usually work, nourishing food, moving your body, values consistent living, spending time with things and people that you love. Like, those things will work every time. And, like, sometimes you, you're going to have, like, a car accident or... Your bills aren't, aren't going to get paid. You're going to lose your job. Like a global pandemic's going to set it. Like you don't have control over everything. It got dark um, real fast, Kim. It did. It <laughs> got dark really fast. Like, then your dog dies. Your truck runs out of gas. It becomes a country song. You country get country. kidnapped by a murderer. <laughs> you get kidnapped by a murderer. So it can go all kinds of different directions. Um, but to know that you're going to fail, prepare for that failure at times lean into it like authentically and with vulnerability, you're giving your clients a gift that they otherwise wouldn't have received. 
Very true. So is anything left unsaid? I mean, probably. But probably. We probably missed a few things. I think clients need to know if they go to a bad therapist, mm -hmm. it's okay to stop that therapy and find somebody else. Mm -hmm. You fire have them. to stay. Fire them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've been in my own therapy. I've seen a bad therapist. Me too. Uh, I was talking, I used this example in leadership last week. I went to see a therapist um, with my husband for premarital counseling. And we had, this was like 12 years ago now. Um, but we both have a, like a mostly secure attachment style with a sprinkling of avoidance. Um, and so like if things got dark, we would never fight though. We just like go into our own caves and not like just go our separate ways for a while and do our own thing. We're busy. It's easy to do. Um, and I remember going to the therapist. We went to him for like four sessions and he had the future Rama theme song as a ringtone, which I don't know. He was in his fifties. It just was really hard to take him seriously with this future Rama <laughs> ringtone. Um, but he also at like, admit in the third session he's like well so you don't ever fight we're like no we really don't have fights we just have distance um and I remember he took his papers threw them up in the air and he's like well then I don't know how to help you um and we looked at him like you've helped us so much already thank you and that was our last <laughs> session like that's how the story ended um and so I think it but and then we went and found somebody that was able to work with that which we were bringing to the table but I, I, that doesn't even necessarily make him a bad therapist, although I think the Futurama ringtone does. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't make him an inherently bad therapist, but it, it made him a really bad fit for us. Um, and so we were able to leave and find a better fit. Um, and so that would be my ask for anybody who experiences bad therapy, um, is to leave and give it another chance, because there's a lot of really good therapy out there as well. So I want to thank you all for spending your Friday afternoon with me. I know it's not a true happy hour. I guess we're not allowed to drink on the clock, but um, I really appreciate you all and your willingness to like lean in and join us here today. Um, and hopefully we'll get to do this again sometime. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having thank us. You. Yeah, thank yeah. you. It's fun.